you pray with me one more time? Father, uh, we, we need you at this time. As we come to worship you through listening to the preaching of your word, let us come with an acknowledgement that all this is accomplished, all this is uh, applied to us through the Holy Spirit. Let us be a people who believe in your Holy Spirit, who trust your work to transform us, your work to uh, give us a confidence in your gospel. Father, without you, all we can do is law. There is no gospel without you and your will through the work of Jesus and applied by the Spirit. So, Father, would you let us rest in that? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the story goes that an apprehensive traveler was approaching the gangway of an enormous new passenger liner and gazed up in amazement at its looming hulk. Is the ship really unsinkable? She nervously inquired of a nearby deckhand. Yes, lady, the deckhand answers. God himself could not sink this ship. The ship in question, of course, is the Titanic, you may have guessed. And whether the story is true or not, it captures the feeling around the accomplishment of Titanic. Titanic represented the pinnacle of man's ability. We'd done it. We'd achieved perfection. But we know the outcome, don't we? On April 14th, 1912, Titanic struck an iceberg and into the night into the next morning, slipped below the surface of the Atlantic Ocean on its first voyage en route to New York City. The sinking of Titanic captures our attention today, I think because of the great loss of life on the one hand, but I think also because of the hubris attached to it. That audacious belief that its sinking simply could not happen. The builders had the audacity to say and to believe that it was unsinkable. Well, it's easy to look back at the claims of the past and to scoff at the audacity of them. We wonder how people could have said the things that they said. We know better, don't we? Sitting here this morning. We know better. Hindsight is twenty twenty. We have a clearer picture looking back at the blind spots of the past with a disregard for our blind spots in our own present reality, especially when it comes to our own weakness, don't we? We can make audacious claims without considering how outlandish they really are. Our limited perspective affords us such a luxury. But what would it take to have an unsinkable faith, to be able to claim that with integrity that we believe in God and to live that way, to have the audacity to say such a thing, that I believe in God. Depending on where you look, 70 to 80% of Americans believe in God. And something like 60% of those, according to surveys, claim to believe in the God of the Bible. But if you look around, it certainly doesn't feel that way, does it? But to claim that one believes in God at all is an audacious claim. What does it mean to say that we believe in God? What does it mean to say that we believe in the God of the Bible? Well, to have the audacity to say that we truly believe in God means that we follow 
all that he commands and we go everywhere that he tells us to go. Is that the case? Do 70 to 80 percent of Americans believe in God that way? Do you believe in God that way? Consider the nation of Israel as a test case. If you have a Bible, turn to Numbers chapter 14. That's where we'll be this morning. Certainly we could say that they believe in God, couldn't we? After all, they certainly know that he's real. He led them out of slavery in Egypt with miraculous signs and provisions. They've seen this God in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They've seen him. But by the time we come to Numbers 14, their very belief is called into question. Numbers 14, beginning in verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me and how long Will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. I want to stop right there because the Lord's response to their desire to go back to Egypt is very telling, isn't it? How long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me? Who said anything about despising God and not believing in him? We just don't want to follow him, that's all. Do you think that Israel would have said that they believe in God? God calls that an audacious claim. They've seen it all, but they don't believe. God challenges the simple nature of belief here and says that human-centered belief in God is audacious. Because belief is not simple. It is given to produce action and to proclaim God's good character. According to the Bible, that's belief. Do you have the audacity to say that you believe according to that definition? Numbers 14 tells us something of belief. 
pushing beyond our culture's simple definition. It tells us that belief in God is an audacious claim that in order to be claimed with any integrity must be rooted in the gospel and far from our own humanistic effort. But we'll see that as we work through the text. If you have an outline, which should be on the back of your bullets and you can follow along, as we work through this narrative in Numbers 14. Uh, Numbers 14 reveals three things about belief in God. Number one, belief in God is demonstrated by action. Belief in God is demonstrated by action. You know, by this point, as mentioned, Israel has seen a lot in their history already of who God is. They've seen the man Moses come into their midst while they were still slaves. God sent him there. They've seen his God go toe-to-toe with the mighty gods of Egypt and, and come out without a scratch in the ten plagues. They've seen God deliver them from the armies of Pharaoh, the most mighty armies in all the earth at that time. They've seen God part the waters of the Red Sea so that they could cross on dry land and leave Egypt. They've seen their needs met in the wilderness, including by leading them visibly by a cloud and by a pillar of fire. They've seen God descend on Sinai. And now they've come to the thing that God has promised for over 400 years. They've come to the border of this promised land that was promised to their patriarch Abraham. And spies have been sent in to spy out the land to see what it's all about. And they come back confirming that the land is indeed good. But inexplicably, they recommend turning tail and running because the people there look fierce. They don't think that they can beat them. Never mind all that God has just done to Egypt. They cannot possibly go in there. We pick up our story right there in verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Israel is ready to throw in the towel. They can't do it. And when God descends, he challenges that belief in them. Why do these people not believe in me? What changed? What's different here? They certainly still know that God exists, don't they? After all, he's right above them, leading them by a cloud of fire by a cloud and fire, uh, they can just look up and see him. What's changed is their action. Their action does not line up with a belief in God. That tells us something very important, doesn't it? That tells us what it means to truly believe in God. That tells us two things about belief, really. First, that believing in God is not nostalgic, Believing in God is not nostalgic. Belief is not a relic of the past. It's not something that you can point to and say, I did that once upon a time. I did it back there. There's plenty of proof that Israel followed God back there, isn't there? They just We just went through all the examples. But belief, according to God, is not a back there event. Belief is not a decision made once upon a time but it's something that is displayed every time a threat comes. 
For Israel, it's trusting God this time as they walk into the promised land and not pointing to the moment back there when they did believe. Belief is indicated in the moment. Boy, we forget that, don't we? So often we're content to say that we believe in God. We believe in his gospel because of some faith that I expressed in the past. We're very content to rest on what we've done in the past. Some decision that I made in my memory. Well, this text challenges that decisional belief, doesn't it? Because your belief is indicated by action. It's not a nostalgic faith. Any more than my marriage would hang on because of I had a ceremony that I had ten years ago. Yes, Hannah and I were married in a ceremony ten years ago. I remember it well. It was a beautiful day. But my marriage would disintegrate if I just clung to that moment in time, wouldn't it? Not that the ceremony's bad, and not that your moment of conversion is bad either. It's that those are not the things that prove you're in a true love relationship. Continuing to trust, that's what proves it. Continuing to lean into it, that's what proves it. Belief in God is not a nostalgic relic of the past, something that you did there. It's present in the midst of struggle. Believing in God is not nostalgic. But this also shows us that believing in God is not intellectual. Believing in God is not intellectual. Again, look at Israel. They know that God exists. There's no issue there. They can probably give you a bit of good theology that God exists. But for all they know about God intellectually, they cannot turn the corner into believing God physically. The same is true for us. We can know all about God We can be a witness to all that he has done, even watching it take place all around us. But we can still fail to believe if we don't believe him to do what he promises to do. Belief is never expressed intellectually, but it's done in doing the next right thing. It's true that God can be known about intellectually. God's word reveals a logic. It's not chaos. God is not chaos in his knowability. Even creation testifies to the existence of God. You can know something intellectually about God. But your intellect cannot will you into a knowledge of God, no matter how sophisticated that theology is. Like the police officer who pulled over a driver and asked for his license and registration. The driver asked, what's wrong, officer? I didn't go through any red lights, and I certainly wasn't speeding. No, you weren't, said the officer, but I saw you waving your fist and as you swerved around the lady driving the left lane. And I further observed you flushed and angry-faced as you shouted at the driver of the Hummer who cut you off, and how you pounded your steering wheel when the traffic came to a stop near the bridge. Is that a crime, officer? asked the man. No, but when I saw the Jesus loves you and so do I bumper sticker on the car, I figured this car had to be stolen. (laughs) Your action indicates your belief, doesn't it? Neither your intellect nor your nostalgic past will get you there. 
Belief is expressed in your action, your willingness to do the next right thing. Israel in their history often turned to idols. While our belief in God is often nostalgic or intellectual, the reality is that idols are never nostalgic and they're never intellectual. Do you ever notice that in the Old Testament? The idols that Israel turns to are always born out of some crisis that needs to be solved in the moment. Some problem of belief. You know, we tend to flatten out idols. I don't know if we think that those people are, are primitive in their belief or, or what it is that we think, but they're not just bowing down to a piece of wood any more than, than they're bowing down to their intellect or to some nostalgic belief. They're bowing down to a real need that they're hoping will be met in the moment. What's Israel's need here? In verse 2 we see them say, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? What's the idol? They don't want to die. That's the idol. They don't want their life to be forfeit. So they're turning from belief in God and they're turning toward something else. They believe God will not get them into the promised land alive. So they're rejecting God in favor of the idolatry of the protection of Egypt. Idols are always practical. Israel fears for their lives. That's practical. But they also fear for their wives and children. That's practical too. Our wives and our little ones will become a prey, they say. They fear for their children. What are the practical fears that display your unbelief. The expression of belief will come in the face of those things as you deal with them. Belief in God is always displayed in action. But that action is not just action for the sake of action. It's doing something too. It's not action in a vacuum. That's what Israel shows us here. Because not only is Belief displayed in action. Number two, belief in God is displayed for the world to see. Belief in God is displayed for the world to see. Israel is meant to be a people who display their belief in God. They're to follow him wherever he goes. Hence the pillar of cloud and fire. But what's the point? Why are they to do that? Why are they to follow God at all? Why do they need to journey to the promised land? Is it that God can't simply take them there? Sure he could. He could transport them. So why is it that they have to walk to the promised land? Why do we have to display our belief in the action of following God? What's the point? Well, after this initial rebellion, Moses tells us exactly what the purpose of the action of their belief is among the people of Israel in his intercession. In verse 13, he says, But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. See, Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, but not on the basis of who they are, 
but because they're meant to proclaim who God is. The salvation of this people is meant to display God's glory. That's the point. God's people are saved for his glory and not for their own. God's people are are meant to be a display of God's glory on the earth in their salvation. That's why our belief in action matters. So the world will know who you are, but more importantly, so they will know who God is. The salvation of the people of God is given for our good, that's true, but as a proclamation to the world of how great God is in his salvation. We're to give direction to the world, pointing them to the God of the Bible. <clears throat> in February 2004, Trail Magazine provided directions for climbers descending down Britain's highest peak. Returning from the 4,409-foot summit in bad weather requires some explicit instruction. And the article gave step-by-step advice on navigating the trail down the mountain. Unfortunately, the directions were wrong. And in the fog, they could have led someone down a sheer drop. Fortunately, the mistake was caught and no one was killed, but the direction was a bad one. If our belief in God is meant to offer directions to who God is to the world, what sort of direction does your belief offer? Will it cut through the fog and lead them the right direction? Or will it lead people over a cliff? That's what the people of God are meant to be. An arrow pointing up to heaven toward the greatness of God and proclaiming his great salvation in our weakness. That's what Paul proclaims in 2 Corinthians 4. He writes, but we have this treasure that is the gospel of our salvation in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power of God or the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Your belief is meant to point the world to God. How are you doing at that? In your strength, how are you doing at taking the land? Or are you displaying God's gospel well? How does your your duty is to trust God and in doing so not let anxiety take you as Israel does here, but to trust that the gospel gives you a deeper hope. I'm gonna fix this thing. Displayed in the face of all sorts of things in this world. Our hope is to be displayed for the world in the midst of economic downturn, in the midst of our failing health in the midst of our disobedience in our children, in the midst of the death of a spouse, in the midst of your own weakness to do all that God commands? How do you respond to all of that in your life? See, the way that you respond to that is the display of the gospel for the world to see. That's what it's meant to be. That means, Christian, that your belief is not yours. See, we tend to have this me and Jesus mentality, don't we? We enjoy the quiet times with our Savior, and we never really bring that faith out into the public. We tend to read individualism into the Bible. My sanctification is about me and my ability to see God and no one else. 
Even our churches get ingrown in this way. We have little bubbles with our own little subculture. It becomes the kingdom of what we're doing here and now. But our belief is not ours. It's meant to proclaim God's glory. Therefore, church, all of your salvation, all of your suffering, all of your sanctification, that growth in Christ likeness is given for the world to see so that they might see Christ, so that they might see the gospel in your life. You are the public display of the gospel to the world. That means that the gospel ought to have an effect upon the way that you live today. That means that your suffering ought to always get routed through gospel hope. And that you proclaim your hope to the world in your suffering. And that any time there is unbelief in your heart, you repent of that through the gospel. That requires that you would live a transparent life, doesn't it? See, when you see anxiety leak through the cracks of your life, that's an opportunity for you to proclaim the gospel as something better. That's what the Psalms teach, right? David writes this psalm, the cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice And my cry to him reached his ears. That's David confessing his hopeless state for the world to see. That he's not able to come back to God, but he requires that God come and rescue him. Weakness is essential to show God's greatness in the gospel. Because the gospel comes in our weakness. The gospel is the good news that we could not come back to God on our own but that God has offered Jesus as a substitute to die in our place so that we might return to God. That's our great hope. And we live in dependence on God in that hope. And living in that dependence means that we don't need to share a formula of the gospel to the world. Rather, we confess our gospel hope throughout the testimony of our life. As you go through life with your neighbor, with your coworker, with a spouse, you preach the gospel and you use your life as a test case to display the grace of God in the midst of your weakness and your inability to come back to God. In the hope that you have in Jesus, because you could not come to God on your own. Remember what Paul writes, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And then he continues, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Church, we are to use our weakness to proclaim the glory of God in his gospel to the world. Our lives are meant to be a display to the world of our belief in God. Belief in God is displayed 
in our life. But finally, number three, belief in God is dependent upon God. Belief in God is dependent upon God. You know, if you were honest with yourself at this point in the sermon, how would you say you do at the first two points? Does your action display for the world a complete belief in God? Do you do well at that? Do you have the audacity to say that you believe in God to that level? Do you better align with God's instruction or with Israel in our text, who is fearful and unable to obey? You know, the the answer here in this text is is not to make strong laws toward obedience. Okay, I'm going to obey stronger and better next time. I'm going to be a strong display for the world. No, no. Look at the rest of Moses' intercession here. In verse 15, now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised. In the midst of Israel's failure, Moses, the intercessor here, pleads with God for pardon of their sin. Notice he's not interceding and asking God to give them another chance here. Listen, God, I know they messed up. They won't let you down again. Just set them right. Set them back on the path. And they'll do it better next time. No, no. He pleads with God to preserve the people based upon something other than their action of obeying the law and all that God commands the reality is that your belief in God is expressed in action and is for a display to the world. But if that belief is expressed in your ability to perfectly display obedience to the law, then you would fail every time. You might have a few victories here and there. You might make it a few hours. But how long do you really think you could go without any sin? Without doing something that God has commanded that you don't do, or without forgetting to do something that he has commanded you to do. And by the way, if you did accomplish that, then as you did that perfect obedience, how well would you do it pointing the world to see God and not your ability in the process? Do you see how complicated this is? How impossible it is? Inevitably, you'd become like the kid trying to learn the bike, right? Dad picks him up and puts him on and gives him the instructions. Just keep the handlebars straight, pedal, don't lean too much to the left or the right. And as the kid starts to go, he's self-consciously thinking about all of the instructions to the point where it causes him to crash because he's so nervous about doing something wrong. That's how our efforts look in trying to obey the letter of the law. In doing that, we will crash. Your efforts to obey the law will end in a crash. Your efforts to display the glory of God to the world on your own will end in a crash. Unless that sort of belief is not what's in view here. Unless belief expresses something else here. 
And praise God, that's exactly what's intended by this passage. Your belief is expressed in your trust of God's promise in the gospel. That's the belief that's in view. That's the intercession of Moses. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Moses appeals to the promise of God to preserve and keep this people in spite of themselves. Moses intercedes on the basis of God's word to do good to this people. This is not about the audacity of belief, but the audacity of the gospel that keeps us in spite of our constant wandering, in spite of our constant rebellion, because of the promise of a good God and a good intercessor who pleads our case. Based on the promise that God has said that he would keep us. And it works. In verse 20, God pardons their sin because of the gospel. But notice that God does demand perfect obedience. Moses says that God must punish sin here. Visiting the iniquity to the third and fourth generations. That makes sense. Sin is a cosmic treason against God. It's not a minor offense. It's not a slight blemish. It's not a little goof up. Sin is a rebellion against the Creator. It's the creation failing to do what it was created for. Disobeying the one who made them. And the justice of God would be proven to be unjust if God did not punish sin. If God simply said, oh, it's no big deal, and let it go. Everything would be undone. God would be unrighteous in that case. You know, I don't know if Moses knows the full extent of what he's saying here. I know that the Holy Spirit inspired these words. But Moses, the intercessor, says this very interesting phrase. If you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he has killed them in the wilderness. You know, Moses, in that wording, points us forward to a better intercessor, doesn't he? He points us forward to look to Jesus in this passage. One who intercedes in our unbelief before God. An intercessor who is perfect, who can save us to the uttermost, says Hebrews, because of his constant intercession. Jesus, the man in view here, lives to intercede at all times, and that's why we are saved. But he does not intercede as Moses does, who says, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations will see it. He intercedes in a better way, on the basis that he was killed as one man for his people. Therefore, we are saved to the uttermost. Just as it would be unrighteous for God to let sin go unpunished, it would be unrighteous for God to punish sin twice. 
And God has sent Jesus, the perfect substitute for his people, to go and live a perfect life and then die as a sinless person in the place of us as his sinful people. Jesus has taken the wrath that we deserve. Therefore, we are saved as a nation because of the work of Jesus. We need that work. And in recognition of that weakness, that need that we have, we cry out to God and we live in weakness and frailty before the Almighty so that the world can see the greatness of God. Our display to the world of strength would be an audacious claim. We are not strong people before God. Rather, we are broken and sinful people who cling to the gospel, that truth of Jesus Christ who has saved us, and that's what we proclaim to the world. We're like Israel. We can't believe without God's hand in our life. Do you have the audacity to say that you believe in God? When we fall on Jesus Christ for our salvation, we do not make an audacious claim, but we rest in the audacity of the gospel, one that's bought by another. You know, the Titanic proved that it was not unsinkable, just as we are not unsinkable people. If our belief was based upon our own effort, we would sink every time. But it's based upon something greater. It's based upon the audacity of the gospel and its claims. The good news of our salvation because of our weakness. Church, boast in your weakness and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world in your own life. Only then will your belief be truly unsinkable. Father, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the great hope of your gospel through Jesus Christ. Father, we are fallible, broken, sinkable people. We have no ability to come to you on our own. Father, we praise you that you have given the promise of faith for us. That you've given the promise of your gospel. Let us rest in that. Even as we come to this supper now, let us come as people who don't claim to be sinless, who don't claim that we're earning some perfection through this supper, but as people who come because we are weak, broken vessels participating in a supper with you because of the righteousness of Christ. Let that be our proclamation to the world as we participate in this supper. In Jesus' name, amen.